Welcome back to the Power of Sports Nutrition podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, it's my great pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Greg Cox. Greg is also a sports dietitian and he's the Associate Professor at the Faculty of Health Science and Medicine at Bond University. And in addition to that, he has also been a very high level athlete himself. So welcome to the podcast, Greg. Uh, thanks, Liz. It's a pleasure to be on. It's great to be able to pick your brain about carbohydrate, which is our topic for today. But before we get into the nitty gritties, can you tell us about your background and how you became a sports dietitian? Sure. Well, I initially was heavily engaged in sport through my adolescent years. And when I first went into university, I, I thought I'd pursue a career of marine biology. And <laughs> at that at that time, I was after my first 12 months, was adamant that I wanted to pursue more exercise science. So during mm -hmm. my exercise science undergraduate degree, the University of Queensland, I, I absolutely got fascinated about the interaction between exercise and perform, performance and nutrition. Mm -hmm. And it was at a slide actually that I, I, I remember in some detail um, from a study by Dave Costell in the, the, the 80s that really sparked my interest. And, and it was a, a slide that was around carbohydrate and the, you know, the idea of changing your, your muscle glycogen stores or muscle carbohydrate stores and the impact that had on endurance performance. So at that mm -hmm. point, I knew that I, I wanted to do something in that space, like that involved both exercise science and then also nutrition. So I went off and did a dietetics degree and then found myself after a couple of years working in sport, I was fortunate enough to secure a position at the Australian Institute of Sport uh, for sort of 20 years. And during that time, completed a master's and then a PhD in uh, sports nutrition. My PhD studies were focused around carbohydrate requirements in high intensity endurance sports. So carbohydrates mm -hmm. always been an interest area for me. It sparked my interest in um, sports nutrition and it's something that I've pursued sort of throughout my career. Mm -hmm. And so why don't you tell us what is carbohydrate? What are we talking about? So carbohydrate is a predominant fuel that your body uses, particularly at higher intensities of exercise. And I guess the first point that I've learned over a number of years is that as you train as an athlete, as you become more trained as an athlete, your body increases its, its ability to store carbohydrate. It also increases its ability to use carbohydrate at higher intensities of exercise. So, and you'll know yourself as an athlete, you know, as you become fitter, you can s sustain a higher level of work for a longer mm. period of time. And so a trained athlete or even yourself as an athlete, as you become more trained throughout the course of the year, you can burn carbohydrate at a higher intensity for a longer period. Now, the flip of that and the interesting component is that at moderate intensities of exercise, your body, as you become better trained, allows you to burn more or rely more heavily on fat as a fuel. So there's this mm -hmm. interplay between fat use as a fuel and also carbohydrate. And carbohydrate becomes an essential fuel at high intensities because it's more efficient to, to produce energy that your body can then convert to activity or ultimately enhance performance. So carbohydrates found 
broadly in a range of different foods. Um, I'm sure most people could, you know, name a few of the more popular carbohydrate sources, such as you know your pastas, your rice, your your breads, and your grains, mm-hmm. along with things like legumes. Your dairy foods can also be a, a rich source of carbohydrate in your diet. And then you've got some of your more refined carbohydrate foods as well. So things that aren't necessarily nutritious but are high in carbohydrate. So things like you know soft drinks or, or confectionery. I did mention your grains. Probably the other starchy vegetables and, and fruits in varying quantities provide a source of carbohydrate as well. Mm-hmm. And so how do we know how much carbohydrate an athlete uses like is there a a simple way of going okay I need this amount of carbohydrate for my sport or how do we how does research find that out yes so I mentioned when I first got involved in sports nutrition uh, there was quite a lot of research that started around carbohydrate when we developed the techniques to measure the content of carbohydrate in the muscle and that was done in the late 60s and early 70s, predominantly by the Scandinavians when they developed the muscle biopsy technique. And mm-hmm. from that, they were able to start assessing the muscle glycogen stores, so the carbohydrate that's stored within the muscle, which is the most important fuel for the exercising muscle at high intensities. Mm-hmm. So from those sort of early studies in the 60s and 70s, the early recommendations around carbohydrate was done on a percentage of total energy intake. Um, so, you know, recommended 55 to sort of 65% of total energy intake was to, from carbohydrate. And people, like that sort of figure, while it might be useful for a research, it doesn't have any real application to an athlete or, or, or even a clinician in, in that mm-hmm. sense. And so the carbohydrate intake guidelines within sport started to morph towards recommendations per kilogram of body mass. And so for someone that was, you know, undertaking light exercise, you know, for the day, Mm -hmm. um, you know, their carbohydrate requirements, you know, would be less. And so the recommendations, you know, for that type of activity might, well, the current recommendations at least sort of reflect an intake of between three and five grams of carbohydrate per kilogram per day. Mm -hmm. So if you extend that out to an athlete that's, say, 70 kilograms, for instance, you know, three to five grams of carbohydrate is somewhere between 210 to 350 grams of carbohydrate per day. Mm-hmm. The intakes also account for obviously like higher intensity exercise and longer duration activities. So current recommendations suggest that for extreme exercise commitments when someone might be exercising for four or five hours a day at moderate to high intensity, the recommendations that have been developed suggest intakes of up to 8 to 10 grams of carbohydrate per kilogram per day. Mm -hmm. Keep in mind that I guess the earlier research where a lot of the data was based was based on males that were endurance trained. So there's certain physical characteristics that that are unique to that group. Mm -hmm. So when you're trying to interpret those guidelines, you really need to consider a range of different factors before you you simply translate those guidelines, in, you know, to an individual athlete. Yeah, and if you look at the types of athletes that they were they were assessing, the the muscle group that they're mostly measuring is the quad muscle, correct? 
Correct. So, you know, most of the research was done using either a cycling model or a, a running model. And there was yeah. some earlier work done in the 80s where they also used swimming. So they used the tricep uh, or the deltoids, which are obviously more heavily relied on in, in the swimming scenario or equally relied on uh, in a swimming scenario. Yep. But is there as much data on those smaller muscle groups or is it mostly that big quad muscle? Yeah, so the, historically the bulk of the research uh, that has been done within the lab where they've looked at carbohydrate glycogen stores and have been done in the quad, so they're larger muscle groups. And partly that's because they're, more, they're, they're easier models to uh, measure workload um, and also performance are either the bike or running. Um, so predominantly, you know, the quads have been heavily relied on. Occasionally they've done, you know, studies where they've biopsied the calf. And I guess the, even though they're equally invasive, I guess the appetite of a subject to get their bicep, I mean their tricep or their delt biopsies is probably a little less than it would be mm. than getting your quad done. And having had quad biopsies done to myself, I mean, there's not a lot of appetite on any muscle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, the, it's not like everyone's going to volunteer for this whopping great big needle be stuffed down their, their muscle under anaesthetic, under a local anaesthetic and a little sliver of muscle being removed any time you want to work out what's actually going on in the muscle, is there? Yeah, and, and they talk about, you know, the size of the muscle biopsy that's typically taken is the size of a grain of rice. Um, but I have mm -hmm. seen some reasonably large grains of rice taken out. <laughs> leg. And, and, and that sort of obviously you need full consent from an athlete. Mm -hmm. um, and typically the athletes that are, you know, volunteering for those types of studies aren't at the elite elite end of, uh, of their, their careers as well. So one way to assess the you know the muscle carbohydrate stores is you know directly through a biopsy. If you step back and you want to look at like your whole body use of carbohydrate, you can do that by using what's referred to as indirect calorimetry. Mm -hmm. And indirect calorimetry is using gas exchange. Uh, so you're looking at your oxygen and carbon dioxide consumed and also ex exhaled. And because your different fuels, your predominant fuels that your body uses, fat and carbohydrate have different uh, chemical compositions. You're able to determine, you know, the, the ratios of fat and carbohydrate that you're burning from a whole body perspective when you're doing an incremental exercise bout. And a lot of athletes, perhaps, particularly if you're engaged in high uh, um, level competition and you're invi involved in a sort of systemized nationally supported like sport you may well have undertaken a, a vo2 max for instance mm -hmm. as a sports dietitian you can actually use the different levels if you've been while you're doing a vo2 max so at each increment you, if that data that gas data you can actually then calculate carbohydrate and fat oxidation rates mm. and so to give you an idea like at you know for a really well-trained male that's, a, let's say, a cyclist, for instance, and they're exercising as hard as they can, like for an hour, 
you know, they're probably burning, you know, between sort of four and a half to five grams, maybe slightly either side of that, you know, per minute over the course right. of the hour. So, mm -hmm. you know, over the course of an hour, they could get through about 300 grams of, of carbohydrate, mm -hmm. uh, which is a, a lot of carbohydrate. That's a lot of bananas. Like mm -hmm. um, a banana has got about 20 grams of carbohydrate per banana. Yeah. Yeah. And so if most of the research has been done in a cycling or a, a running model, for example, what do we know about team sports where there might be changes in exercise intensity? So, you know, at some point in time you might be resting or just walking and then other times you'll be sprinting, for example. Do we have much data on that? And what about uh, skill-based sports like, for example, archery or shooting? Certainly in the team sports sector, uh, perhaps the most uh, widely studied team sport which you is football or mm -hmm. soccer perhaps depending on where you live and like again using lower body muscles they do show that there's a, a decrease in muscle glycogen stores over the course uh, of a soccer game for instance mm -hmm. so that inter intermittent type activity you know that stop start nature of team sports you know you'll be relying again on a mix of fuels depending on the intensity and the time in motion, you know, that the athlete spends over the over the course. So those short bursts of activity, you know, there's more of a reliance on carbohydrate. And as the intensity starts to drop and might even slow to a walk, well, then in those sort of scenarios, um, well, then the athlete would be then using a little bit more fat and, and then also the carbohydrate uh, requirements would be reduced. Now, the most important thing, and, and this is one thing that I guess people because I've just talked about the percentage. So as you, mm. the intensity drops down, well, then, you know, you might use more fat and less carbohydrate, but your overall use of fuel is reduced, be mm -hmm. it fat or carbohydrate. So it's really at those higher intensities that you're burning more energy. And when you, the intensity of exercise is lower, well, then your overall cost of exercise is also lower. Now, that might seem reasonably rudimentary, but it's also important concept to understand and going back to that early an earlier comment that i made as you become more trained you can burn more fuel and mm -hmm. not only can you burn more fuel but part of the process of what allows you to go faster is the ability to burn fuel more quickly so it's not just a consequence of the activity it's actually part of the adaptation that you get to do the activity mm -hmm. Yeah. So, in fact, your your carbohydrate and total fuel or calorie needs changes across time according to not only the type of activity that you do and how long you do it for, but also how well-trained you are. Yeah, most definitely. And I think, again, this concept took me a long time to understand, but mm. that, that occurs over the course of a year of training you know and say if you're moving towards the major competition of the year when you're at your fittest well then that's when your calorie needs are highest and you know because you're working at higher intensities a lot of the extra calories that you need are carbohydrate that also then adds up accumulatively over your career and some athletes that you know if you've been in the game for a number of years you know a session that you can do 
you know, when you're well trained over a number of years, if you tried to do that, say, that session 10 years ago, you probably wouldn't have lasted as long at that intensity mm-hmm. and you would have needed, you know, another couple of days to recover from that session before you could do a similar sort of session again. Mm-hmm. So not only do you burn more fuel, like, within the actual session, your ability to recover and do another similar style of session closely is also increased. So, you know, your overall weekly requirements as you become trained over a number of years actually increases. Mm. And one of the things I've worked in triathlon for a long time, you would often hear the term, you know, I became more efficient. And so there's an efficiency of movement, but it doesn't necessarily relate back to your use of fuel. You actually get better at using fuel as you develop into an elite athlete as opposed to more efficient with that fuel. Mm -hmm. uh, Okay. Yep. Hmm. It's quite complicated, isn't it? <laughs> well, and, and you know, like I said, it took me probably, I think, 15 years to work that out. And, yeah. and, and so then the complex question is, is then getting an athlete to sort of understand that connection to, to fuel yeah. um, and how their fueling requirements, you know, change over the course of their career and even over the course of a year. Yep. So, you know, it's not a stagnant recommendation. And athletes mm. need to be considerate of, you know, their overall training volume for that that week. And I think, you know, as an athlete, if you want to break it down and if you think about well, what are my carbohydrate needs for the week, what are my calorie needs for the week, you think about the fit sort of principle. So the frequency of your training sessions. So mm-hmm. early in the season, you might be not doing as many sessions the intensity of those sessions, you know, typically increase over the course of of a year, um, mm-hmm. the time or the duration of the sessions, and then also the type of the sessions as well. So they will be all the factors that will influence both your daily requirements for fuel and also, you know, your weekly requirements. And I think I often talk about calories and carbohydrate. They're different concepts, but typically the way we eat the nutrient or the foods that contain carbohydrate, they're the, the foods that provide the vehicle to change your daily calorie intake. So mm-hmm. if you're manipulating, you know, foods that, you know, that are carbohydrate containing, well, then typically that will increase or decrease your overall daily calories or energy intake. Yep. So how would an athlete know if they're not doing a good enough job with getting enough carbohydrate or if they're over consuming carbohydrate is it can you over consume carbohydrate like i you know if you look at gyms and and things like that there's tons of sports drinks available and you often see people at the local gym you know doing their little treadmill workout and chugging down a a sports drink while they're doing it is that necessary in, and is that can you get too much? And then from the flip side, for an athlete who's perhaps not getting enough, how do they know that they're not getting enough? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think if you think about the athlete as a system mm-hmm. and you've got various inputs into that system and then you've got various outputs, so things that you might be able to measure and or or sense, you know, on the back of doing exercise. So 
an input to the system would be dietary intake or exercise volume, as an example. Mm-hmm. And an output might be the change in someone's body composition, a change in somebody's pathology, so or the change in someone, how they feel in response to exercise. Mm-hmm. And so those feelings, or measure, and some of them are measurable, might be things like body awareness cues, for instance. And obviously the output to a system is performance as well. But if you look at body awareness cues, you know, they might be things like if you've not fueled adequately, you know, for a session, you might not be able to complete the session as prescribed. So you might Mm -hmm. get two thirds of the way through a intense interval session and then not be able to complete the remainder of that session as recommended by a coach for instance mm-hmm. or you might find that you know your ability to turn up to the second session of the day you know you haven't fully recovered for that second second session you know you might find that your you know your sleeping's disrupted you might find your overall fatigue is increased mm-hmm. um, looking a little bit more holistically things like if you're heavily under fueling well then you might even find like in men their libido is impacted mm-hmm. other sort of symptoms that i find that athletes might suffer from is that they get up in the middle of the night and they're starving like and, mm-hmm. you know they haven't eaten enough like to support the demands of the day so they're, they're sort of indicators perhaps that you might not be you know adequately fueling for a session i mentioned performance so if you're not progressing your performance over time, if your competition performances aren't consistent, you know, there may be other indications that you're not meeting your fueling requirements. I guess the one thing that you typically see is if an athlete's on the other end of the spectrum, like they're overfueling, well then that might then manipulate or change their body composition more unfavorably to what they're trying to achieve through their sport. Um, so they might find that their body composition in terms of their their fat mass versus their fat-free mass is not at a composition that optimises their p- performance for their chosen sport. And it could be their overall weight alongside their body composition or it could be um, their co- body composition alone. Mm-hmm. And is the immune system also linked to carbohydrate intake? Like would that also be impacted if you weren't consuming enough carbohydrate, do you think? Yeah, most definitely. And I think it's, again, you know, those signs of illness and sickness. And so immune function, both acutely and probably most acutely, actually, you know, in that post-exercise window, you're more susceptible to picking up a bug or compromising your immune system post-exercise if you haven't adequately fueled during the session. Mm -hmm. Uh, But also, you know, going back to, say, your input, your dietary intake, if you haven't eaten enough iron, well, the output for that would be, you know, if you had your pathology done at the local doctor or a sports physician, you might find that you have low iron stores, which would then indicate that for your daily requirements of iron, which are increased in response to heavy exercise, you mm-hmm. simply haven't met that. So there's various outputs an athlete should sort of be mindful of, and they might do that alongside the support of a sports nutrition professional, um, mm-hmm or even a sports physician, and and then there's various inputs that they sort of need to be mindful as well. And that's the and you can't really you can manipulate the outputs by changing the inputs. You know your dietary intake and your exercise structure or schedule for the week. Yeah. So I think it's how do you know if you're not eating enough? I think there's those acute measures around the performance session itself. 
you know, you need to ask yourself, are you developing like you would expect in response to the exercise? And, and if you're not, taking into account those other cues as well, well, then it's important to get some support um, mm-hmm. from a sports nutrition professional so that you can better understand that balance. Because as much as you think it would be your body would sort of respond directly to the exercise and it would just simply adjust your appetite and hunger so that you eat the appropriate amount, like it's really much more complex than that. And mm. the studies show that there's no strong biological drive for your body simply to meet the energy that you expend during exercise. Because a lot of the exercise activities that we undertake today are, are far from what we were ever designed to do anyway. Mm. Yep. So that so you you often need, you know, someone to be able to help support and navigate, you know, that delicate balance. Yeah. And other factors that can influence how much carbohydrate you need, you said it changes over the course of a, a training phase over a number of years, but things like exercising at altitude, exercising in the heat, exercising in extreme cold temperatures, they also can influence how much carbohydrate you need during that exercise session itself, can't they? Yeah, yeah, most definitely. And if you if you take you know the heat as an example, you know you tend to for the same relative intensity of exercise, you can increase use of carbohydrate as a fuel. To then complicate it after a hot session in the heat, you know you might find that your appetite is suppressed. So mm. you've got an increased requirement for carbohydrate and a, de- a decreased desire to actually eat it like in a hot environment. And so that's where it's important to then sort of consider what your options are. And it might make you then think about the types of foods that or fluids that you might incorporate in those sort of scenarios that align with that increased requir- requirement. Mm-hmm. So that might be a scenario where you you would consume more, say, for example, of a sports drink or and if it was particularly cold that might help in terms of both the temperature and and also delivering that carbohydrate at the same time yeah most definitely so and it's and it could be a sports drink you you know one of the things that that i've used over the years is using like a liquid meal supplement Mm -hmm. Um, in australia for the australian viewers you'd be you know familiar with sausage and sport which is a sort of a four to one um, Mm -hmm. type product and when i say four to one it's got four grams of carbs for every gram of protein. Yep. So that type of product, you know, it's recommended to mix like 60 grams with uh, 250 mils of water. But if you use that as a post-exercise sort of fluid in a hot environment, you might mix it over four or 500 mils of water mm-hmm. and add some ice to it and then use it as a sports drink like post-exercise. And those types of beverages can be highly palatable beverages and not only do they support your carbohydrate requirements post-exercise, but they also support, you know, you meeting and aligning your intake to post-exercise protein recommendations as well. Mm-hmm. And so in other countries, maybe that could be something like a chocolate milk. Yeah, of course. Like a chocolate milk, you know, there's been research studies done on chocolate milk mm. now. And so you might use a combination of the chocolate milk and like a, a sports or, or water, for instance, in that post-exercise window to help support your sort of hydration and then also your fueling and carbohydrate needs. Mm-hmm. Um, so like a, if you've done a session that's a heavy 
that's required like a heavy fueling element to it, you know, using a, a protein drink, which everyone seems to want to use these days, yeah. like it's a low energy, almost virtually carbohydrate free beverage. And so, yeah, sure, it meets post-exercise protein requirements, which, you know, typically recommended around that sort of 20 to 25 grams of protein, but mm. provides no fueling ingredient, mm. no carbohydrate. So, again, it's not uncommon to use like a protein powder, for instance, in milk, which adds the carbohydrate to that beverage, and then it becomes a more balanced, you know, post-exercise fluid. And do you think it's more important to get that carbohydrate in during exercise or is it immediately after exercise or is it throughout an entire day? Like do we need to look at specific windows of opportunity or do you think it, it's also just looking at the global perspective across a whole day? Yeah, like if I think if the idea of an athlete, if you're engaged in high-intensity, high-quality exercise, particularly if it's sustained, you would want to use the carbohydrate ahead and or mm -hmm. during the session as opposed to simply putting it all in after the session. Keep in mind that like for a competition scenario, chances are, you know, an athlete will have a pre-exercise meal, they'll aim to consume carbohydrate during the session. And so, you know, that should be the same sort of strategy at training, particularly in training sessions that align with the demands of competition. And so having the carbohydrate ahead and not well behind when the exercise is completed is, is probably a really important strategy because a common, well, not necessarily always, but you do see some athletes that will have all their carbohydrate at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And so they've done all their activity. In these sorts of scenarios, the athletes, by the time they get to their, their second or third session for the day, they never sort of, really fully maximize that session and then they have all their carbohydrate after it mm. well they don't really probably optimize their performance throughout the course of of the day and, mm -hmm. and sports drinks i mean you discussed it before liz you know they're available in gyms they're also available at you know local service stations or gas stations depending on yep. where you're from and you know you'll see athletes they'll come to training they'll have water if they're lucky to bring that along and then as they're driving home they'll go to the gas station fill up the car and grab a sports drink now sports drinks were initially designed to consume during sport that's why they were mm. called sports drinks the original one gatorade was you know designed for the florida gators which were an american college football team to provide you know some aid during competition so they're best consumed during competition or during exercise, particularly in that high-intensity exercise as opposed to at the end, end of the day. Yep. So getting organised, you know, ahead of a training session, being organised for the session, particularly for those more prolonged strenuous sessions uh, are mm -hmm. important as opposed to simply having the carbs after you've done the exercise. And if you've got more than one session in a day, obviously optimising in between those two sessions or three sessions, how much you have so that you're continuing to support each session in its own merit. Yeah, correct. Like, because if you're under fuel the first one, well, chances are, you know, the second one, you're only going to compound that. So mm -hmm. not only do you miss gaining the full benefit in that first session, but then you miss the opportunity in the second one. Yep. And if you ran out of 
carbohydrates. So your muscle glycogen is your storage form of carbohydrate. If you run low on that, how long does it take to replenish that? Is it something that happens pretty quickly or does it actually take a fair bit of time? Yeah, so you, you can, you know, if you're consuming carbohydrate, there might be some, you know, sparing of the use of carbohydrate like from the muscle during the ex- exercise itself, depending on what you're consuming and how fast you're burning it. Mm-hmm. Certainly post-exercise, if you've got a short window of recovery between when you finish the session and your next session, so, you know, it's four or five hours apart, well, the total or the, the timing can become important. Like so mm-hmm. having it immediately after exercise, you have a slightly elevated rate of muscle glycogen resynthesis in that post-exercise window. So having a timely amount of carbohydrate post-exercise is useful in those really acute setting. And then over the course of 24 hours, well, then the total volume becomes more important. How much do you consume depends on you know what your ability is to store carbohydrate in the muscle, which very much links back to your total volume of muscle that you have, as well as how trained, particularly endurance trained, you are as an individual. So the more muscle volume that you have and the greater you are from an endurance trained perspective will both increase total carbohydrate requirements you need in terms of replenishing muscle carbohydrate stores from one day to the next. And so if you're, say, a para-athlete who's got muscle atrophy or is using smaller muscle groups than, say, our traditional quad muscles of cyclists and runners, do you think we have to change the amount of carbohydrate that we consume for for those athletes? Like, are they likely that those recommendations, you have to use a smaller recommendation because it's a smaller muscle? Yeah, I think you... So I guess if there's been some atrophy, the overall body weight of the athlete will be smaller. Mm-hmm. So there'll be, you know, if you're interpreting the daily requirements per kilogram of body mass well then you know you would obviously end up with a smaller total volume for the day Mm -hmm. Um, even if you're you know using those higher sort of recommendations for the more strenuous activity but with that said particularly if there's lower body atrophy well you know that's a lot of your muscle mass is stored both in your trunk and also in your lower body and so there would be a you know, reasonably significant adjustment that you would have to make in terms of total energy intake and also total carbohydrate intake. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing that you, you mentioned about using you know, smaller muscle groups, so if you're relying more heavily on your upper body, um, is that your ability to store carbohydrate you know, in those muscles is reduced because they're smaller. There's more of a profile for type 2 muscle fibres in the upper body so mm-hmm. which are your fast twitch fibres, and they are even more glycolytic or carbohydrate dependent. So you've got smaller muscle groups, they're sort of reliant on carbohydrate. And so your fueling strategies during longer training sessions probably need to be more consistent than what you might require of, a, of an athlete that's more using their, their lower limbs, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for carriage during activity like cycling and or, or running for instance mm, okay so not more necessarily yeah certainly perhaps a difference you know different strategy in this in the exercise itself 
And over the course of the day, keep in mind that if you have had, you know, some or significant muscle atrophy in the lower limbs, and when you refer to your lower limbs, not just your quads, your hamstrings, your calves, and your, your glutes. So how do I say that on air, like politically correct? Um, maybe your your buttocks? Is that <laughs> Um, so you, you know that, that that area can you know it's large muscle group so if you've had significant wasting in that sort of space well then yeah there would be a requirement to make some heavy adjustments you know to your overall daily carbohydrate intake mm-hmm. yeah but it's still proportionally probably generally in the same proportions to your total energy needs correct yeah 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 yeah, yeah. and there's certainly and- been you know shown to be you know, in like there's not a, a large amount of research in that space, but the research that is available suggests that, you know, there's a reduction in total energy requirements, you know, in some of the para-athlete groups, particularly mm-hmm. when they've had significant muscle wasting. Yeah, okay. What about the males versus females? Do we Do we kind of have a good handle, do you think, on whether there's substantial differences in carbohydrate needs between males and females? That is a great question and opens probably a massive can of worms. (laughs) I think if you correct for lean mass and, and exercise intensity, so it's the same relative exercise intensity, there's probably very little. Mm -hmm. Um, But the Body composition of male and female athletes is not always, but can be different. Yep. And so, you know, it's important, I think, to look at the individual and work with an individual rather than, you know, being too defined by, you know, their, their gender mm. because, you know, you do have different nuances with different athletes regardless if they're male or female. So some of the experiences I've had with female athletes, you know, in endurance sports, like they've been able to tolerate, ingest and use carbohydrate at higher rates than I've seen in some of my male athletes. Mm. Uh, So I think if you looked on it on balance, if you've got male and female athlete and you correct them for like lean mass relative intensity, you know, there's not a lot of support to say that the dynamics around carbohydrate use are a lot, lot different. Um, so I think it's important to sort of understand yourself as an athlete or if you're working with an athlete, understand the athlete mm. um, because I've seen probably more differences with different athletes than be it male or female defining what their requirements are. Uh-huh. And in terms of we've kind of talked about how it might feel globally if you're not getting enough carbohydrate throughout a day what about if you ran out of carbohydrate during an actual exercise session what yeah, does that what does that feel like yeah i can still remember the last time that happened to me um, <laughs> not very not very pleasant no so i mean typically the feeling is you know the intensity of activity that you're able to maintain just simply drops um, mm-hmm. and so you know it's like self-regulating you know you can't utilize the, the hydrate because it's not much available and so you'll end up operating at a at a, at a lower intensity and mm-hmm. so that's that fatigue element that creeps in 
throughout the course of a training session or throughout the course of a competition can be associated with the availability of carbohydrate. And if you look at, as an extreme example, you know, the concept of breaking two hours for the, the marathon mm. uh, with Kipchoge, one of the strategies in, like, one of well, the nutrition strategy in that particular activity was to maintain high rates of carbohydrate oxidation right throughout the two hours. So they had a, they had a very aggressive carbohydrate fueling strategy before and then throughout the event so that, that Kipchoge was able to rely exclusively on carbohydrate right throughout. Now, mm-hmm. if he had at some point depleted muscle glycogen stores or at least, you know, started to reduce them heavily, well, then there would be some fatigue associated with it. Now, he would be unlikely then just to simply stop um, because he's so well trained, but there would be a slowing in terms of the pace that he's able to maintain. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Cool. So many things to think about. But I guess, you know, the the biggest point is is that it's not a simple answer in terms of how much carbohydrate do you need and working with a sports nutrition professional who can really kind of drill down into, well, what's the type of exercise you do? How long do you do it for? How well trained you are? What are your energy needs? How do we kind of make sure that we... We look at the type of exercise, the intensity, et cetera, et cetera. They can help you kind of work through what the, the likely scenario is and then it's a matter of trial, trialling a number of things and, and really taking good notice of your body to see where it might make improvements by having a little bit more carbohydrate in and around exercise. Would you, do you think that's kind of a one way of summing it yeah, up? That's a great sort of summary. And I think, you know, not every athlete will necessarily have the option to see a sports dietitian. So if you think about the way I sort of sit down with an athlete is you look at their overall training week and how that married over the the particular focus for a part of the year. And so Mm -hmm. let's say they're 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 an endurance trained athlete, they've been training since November in major championships or in September for instance and you've got them in that sort of they've been through their early introductory training they've got a great you know base of of exercise under their belt so they're well trained so you look at the the you know their platform for the week and what their training schedule looks like and then you might want to identify what those key sessions are like throughout the course of the week Uh, so there might be two or three really key high quality sustained effort type sessions mm-hmm. and they're the ones that as an athlete you want to make sure that you've had you know some fuel before it got availability of fuel during it and you know you've got some recovery strategies in place you know after that session mm-hmm. and then the other sessions that fill in the rest of the week might not require you to be as intense with your strategies to accommodate those other training sessions for the rest of the week but think about your key sessions first, mm-hmm. um, real performance-related sessions. They're the sessions you want to go into well-fueled. So think about what, you, you know, if it's a morning session, making sure that you've got some carbs, you know, in your evening meal the night before. You want to get up adequately in time so that you can have a pre-exercise snack, mm-hmm. making sure that you've got carbohydrate available during the session and then timely meal and or snack after that 
uh, in combination with the meal to make sure that you're able to recover from that session in preparation for another session on that day. If you've got a lighter training day, well, then you can be a little bit more relaxed and you, your strategy around fueling would be less aggressive, you know, in those sort of lighter training days. So simply put more aggressive on heavy training days, less aggressive on those sort of lighter recovery days. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, that, that looks after your recommendations for athletes. Uh, so any specific recommendations you have for practitioners like sports nutrition practitioners who maybe aren't used to working with para-athletes and are struggling a little bit with trying to work out perhaps what some of the para-athletes needs might be from a carbohydrate perspective? Yeah, I think that's a great question, Lizzie. I would challenge a sports dietitian to, if there's any, like look at the available data that they've got on the athlete. So mm-hmm. if there's if been some um, ongoing assessment of body composition, then having a look at um, the changes in body composition over time um, and seeing whether or not you know, you're achieving favourable changes in body composition. Training metrics, so, you know, interrogating training diaries. If the athletes have got, you know, if they're on a hand cycle or or if they're using a bike, for instance, you know, having a look at, you know, their Garmin uh, to understand, you know, what their, their energy cost of the exercise is. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's any data available, like from incremental exercise tests, particularly if they've measured gas exchange during those sessions. Like I think, you know, as a sports dietitian, that's the data that you need to go and grab because then Mm. you can understand and calculate carbohydrate and fat oxidation rates at different intensities of exercise. Mm. And there's not that many sports dietitians that will go and, you know, jump into that sort of data to to look. There's much more training metrics that are available now from athletes. So it could be heart rate data, even ratings of perceived exertion or whatever. So having a look at that mm-hmm. data, I think, is really important. Getting feedback from the coach as well, um, if you've got access to a coach, and then obviously getting feedback from the athlete and, and how they're managing you know, a training week and how they're feeling throughout the course of the week. Mm-hmm. So sitting down and just understanding their dietary intake is a small part of the parcel in terms of understanding, you know, the whole of athlete picture. Mm. Um, the other thing is that you don't want to try to solve the whole whole picture at once. And so, mm. you know, as a practitioner, I challenge you to sort of focus in on, again, those key areas throughout the course of the week and get those right. And then you can build from those core sessions out to other sessions and, and you can manipulate the other, you know, days during the week to then, manage a whole week for an athlete but really looking after those key performance sessions I think should be your first area of focus Mm. yep absolutely terrific I think you know there's there's a lot of things to consider there and and we could go down other rabbit holes like what about you know combat sport athletes and trying to manage weight but they're all specialist kind of topics and I think a whole podcast in and of themselves so I think that's given us a really good overview of some of the core things to think about I guess one one key question you know there's a lot of 
of talk recently, I guess over the last couple of years, and and you know, nutrition, sports nutrition is one of those things where there's like a a pendulum that swings and it swings in different directions, and you get extremes at one end. But the keto diet and whether athletes can actually adapt to not needing carbohydrate. Do you think that's a thing or not? Yes, yeah, certainly your body is a system that will respond to the fuels that you consume. Mm-hmm. So, you know, every, any given intensity of activity, if your diet is a diet that's higher in carbohydrate, well then at that intensity you'll tend to use a little bit more carbohydrate as a fuel Likewise, if your diet you know, is extremely low in carbohydrate and high in fat, um, at that given intensity of activity, you'll rely more heavily on fat. One of the, the earliest studies in this space showed sort of quite clearly that, you know, on a high-fat diet, you know, as you change gears into that higher-intensity sort of work, when your mm-hmm. body's looking to burn carbohydrate, is it down-regulates your ability to burn carbohydrate at those higher intensities when your body wants to most use it because that's it's most efficient. It requires mm-hmm. less oxygen to burn car- carbohydrate to liberate a certain amount of energy compared to fat. Mm-hmm. So if you're engaged in sports where you're never going to test out your maximal capacity for an extended period of time, well, then... A keto diet may have some application, yeah. Um, but if you're unfortunately, if you're involved in Olympic sports, there's not too many Olympic sports that <laughs> that fit that scenario. No. And so, from an Olympic sport perspective, you, you know it's often requirement of the athlete to work as hard as they can for a relatively brief period of time, not like a long, long period of time, not over days or consecutive days. Um, so I think in, in those scenarios, you know, having your body so it has the ability to burn, you know, a mix of fuels, so having a diet that, you know, has a mixed substrate or intake of carbohydrate and fat, mm-hmm. like I think is useful. And then having carbohydrate available when your body most needs it is probably, you know, the most appropriate strategy. So I guess to be clear, like, there's no requirement to have a high carbohydrate diet. It's about having a diet that contains carbohydrate that's aligned to your daily exercise load. Mm-hmm. And so higher activity day, like a higher volume training day, higher intensity training day, well, then you would up your intake of carbohydrate. That would change your daily energy intake as well, so your calories. Mm-hmm. So that, that makes sort of sense. And then on a lower activity day, well, then there might be some adjustment of your carbohydrate intake so that you're a bit less aggressive with your intake on on that day. So you're eating less carbohydrate, less total energy. Again, aligns with your total energy requirements for the day. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Well, Greg, I think we've taken up more than enough of your your time and your brain space for uh, this discussion. So we might wind up with one final question, which is what's your favourite food? Jeez, my favourite food. Well, when you okay, so I've got a few, but I think, <laughs> I, I mean, choc mint gelati is pretty high up on the, you know, the top five. Um, <laughs> and agadashi tofu is probably another one that comes to mind as well. So, um, yeah, I do, and there's a bit of carbohydrate and protein amongst those couple of, you know, food choices there. So, mm-hmm. And a nice balance between, 
<laughs> nice balance between something that satisfies the need for something sweet and something savory. Savory, correct, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks again so much for your time and your dedication to this aspect of sports nutrition. It's certainly been a, a career-long passion of yours and I'm glad that we've been able to kind of pick your brain on on this issue because I think it sometimes gets too simplified and and I think you lose some of the essence of of what you really need to to look after and and that's quality of training quality of health and well-being and being really applying things to the type of exercise that you do yeah most definitely and that's really well said Liz that you know, it's about health, well-being, and performance. And carbohydrate foods have have a, an important role to play in that. Mm. Um, and you can't have performance without being health and well anyway. So it all goes hand hand in hand. Yep. Awesome. Thanks heaps. Thank you very much for having me. Hopefully, this podcast has highlighted to you that the carbohydrate needs of athletes is not something that you can put into simple messages like high or low carb. It really has to be applied to the athlete's specific needs according to the type of training that they do, their phase of training and the experience that they've had. And it's a sliding scale that can be adapted on a day-to-day basis according to training load or competition needs. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have any feedback, please leave it on our website. And I hope you'll join us next time when we talk to Stuart Sharp and Daniel Wartner about para football.